Hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blanc. I'm super excited that you're here. Now, in this time, I'm putting out a very special episode because of what's going on with COVID-19 and the uncertainty and anxiety out there. So I wanted to kind of really address this head on of what's going on right there out now, what the outlook is. And to help me with that, I've assembled an incredible panel of experts. Between the six of us, we control about $1.5 billion of multifamily real estate. So you're going to get a very wide perspective. I got people like Brian Burke, Andrew Cushman, John Cohen, uh, Reed Goosens, Drew Niffen, and Ellie Perlman. And uh, it's going to be a really exciting episode because we're going to talk about what we're seeing right now and what we're doing about it. Uh, what are we doing to protect ourselves, to protect our investors? But what at the same time, what are we doing to maybe serve the tenants as well? What do we see in the future? What's coming? What's coming up? What's happened to the capital markets right now? Are we maybe going to get some buying opportunities? And if so, how do you approach those buying opportunities? And we're going to get all that into that in this particular episode. Let's get right started with the episode. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Welcome very much to the live streaming webinar with a panel of experts about how the sky is falling. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. It's just a catchy title to make you guys tune in. But I, I'm really, really excited to have this panel of experts on this call. We have some considerable firepower across tens of thousands of units. And so what we want to talk about today is how this whole thing is, is affecting us and our investors. And therefore, if you are owners of multifamily buildings or even other commercial property, you might glean on uh, some tactics that we're doing to try to protect ourselves from what we think we might happen. And also, if you're a passive investor, you can see what some of the more experienced operators are doing to protect your investment as, as well. So I'm going to kind of go around the room here and uh, introduce everybody here. No particular order. We have Drew Niffen. Drew, say hi to the peeps. Hello, Drew is, everybody. Uh, Drew is president of our investment company called Nighthawk Equity, and we control about 1,700 units valued about $80 million. We have uh, Brian Burke, Brian's been doing this uh, longer than most of us, and he has uh, owned, traded, and bought uh, half a billion dollars worth of pro property. He's also the author of The Hands-Off Investor, and Insider's Guide to Investing in Passive Real Estate in, in Syndications. John Cohn, JC, say hello. John is no slouch either. He's also transacted about almost a half a billion dollars worth of real estate as well. Uh, Reed Goosen, say hello. Right. How's it going? Uh, Reed's got a weird accent because he's from down under and uh, he's no slouch outer. I don't know. I didn't ask you how much you control, but it's about hundred million or so. Oh, uh, it's a little bit more than that now, but we won't, we won't get into it. Uh, you're just a snacker. <laughs> you need to pick up the pace a little bit. And we have, uh, uh, we have Andrew Cushman here. I don't know how much you control, but several thousand units. Yep. Done about 1800. See 1800. Wow. Okay. You guys you need to pick it up a little bit. And we have Ellie Perman, founder CEO of Blue Lake Capital. She controls about a hundred million dollars in real estate. And if I do some quick Excel spreadsheet math, this group here controls about almost $1.5 billion worth of real estate, which is really insane. So really, I'm doing this partly for my benefit and everyone watching, listening to this, because I want to learn from all you guys. We're kind of in this situation where uh, many of us, even people like Brian, who's been around in the Middle Ages, have not really seen before, though maybe in flavors of it. And I, I value your, your feedback, Brian, because you've seen some flavors of this sort of stuff you're doing, I'm watching very carefully, but I also want to hear and see what everybody else is doing and share kind of what we're doing to what we anticipate might happen, how we're mitigating that possible risk, what our outlook is, and what we're doing to protect our investors' money. 
So without any further ado, let's kind of get into the discussion here. Those are the things we want to talk about. <laughs> Andrew, I'm going to call on you first and, uh, and then we'll see, we'll open up here. But what are you doing as an owner to essentially protect your investment as well as that of your investor's uh, investment? And then we'll go around the room and I'm sure you'll knock off like 80% of what people are already thinking of. But if someone's doing something different or unique, then let's talk about that as, as well. So, uh, Andrew, what are, you, what are you guys doing? Yeah, you know, I'm telling you, I'm jealous about all these people that I see asking about what to binge on Netflix because I've been working overtime the last two <laughs> weeks. There's been no TV in my schedule. But, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of things, and, and there's, there's two main aspects. is One is income preservation and then expense reduction, right? We're in a whole new environment now, whereas before we all had business models and plans of growth and everything. Now, number one is asset preservation. And part of asset preservation, of course, is capital preservation, especially for those who are syndicators. We have you know, other people's money involved. So we actually started about two and a half, three weeks ago putting together resources for not only our properties and our management, we use third-party um, property management, but we have an unusually close partnership with them. So we, we do work very closely. So we've been providing them flyers. Um, our fact, what we did is we took our two acquisitions people and said, you are now asset protection people. And their main job is to go, go look into the CARES Act and all these government programs and like, what can we do to apply to the, to the property? So we've been sending flyers to our residents. Okay, here's how you apply for unemployment in your state. Um, we did a survey. Okay, these eight employers are actually hiring right now because they have increased demand. You know, here's the various charities in your area that are still going. And basically, every resource we could find, we've provided that to our tenants. And again, we started this a couple of weeks ago to try to kind of get ahead of it. And at the same time, we've been going through our P&Ls and saying, what can we cut? What can we reduce? Um, we just, I just got an email early, earlier today. One service provider agreed to um, cut their monthly bill from 1500 to 750 right? So, you know, times a year or whatever, that's a significant savings on the property. Um, we are also going to be applying for the PPP, which I believe is the payroll protection program, um, which can cover payroll as long as you don't fire anybody. So that would be the, the on-site staff. There's some question as to whether or not that applies to apartment buildings, but all they can do is say no. So we're definitely gonna apply and, and try to get it um, because it's very legitimate. We do wanna obviously keep our people there and keep them paid. And then, you know, we've been much more flexible with, uh, with tenants than we normally would be, you know, and, and everyone's heard about the eviction moratoriums, uh, which candidly, to me, that's actually a negative because number one, we're not going to evict anyone right now anyway. I mean, it, if someone's in trouble because of COVID-19 and that, that's, to me, it wouldn't be moral to evict them. Two, if you did evict them, there's not going to be anyone to replace them, right? So we're not going to evict anyone. But the danger that I'm seeing is, is with all this uh, everyone promoting, like the, the mayor of LA literally got on the TV and said, you don't have to pay rent this month. And so with that mentality, that's what could cause the problem is everyone thinking, oh, we don't have to pay rent, right? And reality is almost everyone can go get unemployment, have almost 100% of their income replaced and then pay rent. But with that said, we're, you know, we're doing things like, hey, everyone who paid April rent in March, we gave them $50 gift card to a grocery store. We're waiving any and all online payment fees. You know, we're doing uh, additional drawings for paying early 
uh, we're doing lease renewals with, with no increases, especially if you do it, you know, the earlier you do it, it will give you even more benefits. Everything's gone virtual. Um, just, you know, and I, I won't, I'm sure, you know, that's what a lot of people are doing. So I'll, I'll stop at that point, but just a lot of those things, trying to help the residents cut expenses and then protect their income. And then maybe down the road, having to work with our lenders for forbearance. Yeah, John Cohen, what do you, what do you, uh, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? I, I get to follow that up, but no, I think uh, the the only thing that we're not doing, you know, Andrew touched on basically everything. I think everyone's going to be doing the same thing. We've put a big, we're trying to get in front of our tenants. Where you know we're working with them. You know, we've reached out to them proactively and said, hey, you know, we're in it together. I mean, you have rent, we have mortgages, but if you bring us your problems and they are COVID nineteen related we're going to work with you, whether it's a discount on your rent or you add it to the back end. But, it, but in addition, it's these people are hiring, these people are working together. So it's basically just been a, you know, damage control. And, you know, there are people coming out and I saw someone posting on Facebook today and governors and you know, people don't pay your bills, don't do this. And we're trying to tell people that that's ridiculous. You know, your rent, we've had, we had tenants call us and say, if you charge us rent, we're going to sue you. It's illegal. And we're like, you still got to pay your bills, but we're, we're here to work with you. You know, let me help you. Cause if you guys don't pay, we're in a totally different situation and we're not going to be able to help you. So, you know, we've put a big pressure on, you know, our on sites, you know, resident letters through the, you know, through the portal, everything's virtual, just saying, Hey guys, we're here for you. You pay your rent early. We'll work with you. You know, if you need help, some help in April, no problem. If you need them help in May, we're here for you. But uh, we put a big, you know, a lot of pressure on our teams to get out there and just help however they can with, you know, tenant retention. Uh, and like Andrew said, just, you know, mitigating expenses has been the biggest thing, you know, working with vendors and, you know, contractors and renovation projects, you know, seeing, hey, we'll pay you in full right now. Can you give us a discount? So anything we can do to control our expenses including, you know, applying for all the loans and, you know, all that stuff. We're going through all that, whether we qualify or not, we'll see. But uh, a big thing on working with tenants and showing that we're there for you, you know, we took over a lot of super rough properties. So just over the last year to six months, even what we've done so far, the tenants have been so thankful that we've gotten the old owners out and we're in there now that, you know, thank God it happened that way because now they're sitting there saying, wow, these guys really did care. They improved the property. They cleaned it up. They got rid of a lot of the trash. So I think tenants are, you know, I've been surprised. It's April 1st. I was on calls all day, but, uh, you know, we we're pleasantly surprised with the outcome so far with the prepayments and, uh, you know, we're going to continue to work through that. So one of the biggest fears we have is, well, one of them is people can't pay. And that's a real thing. The, I think the bigger concern we have is people won't pay. They'll just, uh, get, you know, this, there was a 30, whatever, 30 unit in Houston that was on CNN a couple of days ago, and they all got together and, and, and basically declared that we're not going to pay rent. Right. And so some of us, I mean, that's what I'm mostly concerned about. So Ellie, I mean, how do you assess the risk of our tenants essentially strategically defaulting on their rent? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. And uh, as a former lawyer, I, I basically, you know, looked into the CARES Act. I didn't read all 800 plus pages, but the concerning part of it was basically the fact that even if someone did not lose their job, if they don't pay rent, you cannot evict them. And that goes for 120 days, which it depends, you know, once tenants understand it, because some of them still think that only if they lose their jobs and they don't have to pay. But, you know, to your question, I think when it comes to assessing the risk, it really depends on your prior relationship 
with your tenants and which area your, your actually your investment is. Because I used to think based on the 2008 crisis that class A are, you know, not going to do very well because many people migrated from class A to class B and C. And a month ago, I thought that class A is actually, you know, it's a good investment now in this crisis because you're basically going to have people that are, you know, people that usually, you know, live in a class A apartment building, they have a very solid tenant profile. They're, they're usually, you know, they're making decent salary. They can work, work remotely. But then what happened was exactly the opposite where you see this initiative to stop paying rents many times from those class A tenants that have more access to information just to show you that you cannot learn much from one crisis to another because every crisis, every financial crisis is very, very different. I've listened to all the different tactics um, on, you know, protecting the cash flow and making sure that the income is as stabilized as much as possible. I would add two more things to that in case, you know, some of our listeners um, and panelists would like to implement it. One is basically looking at this crisis and ask, what are the needs right now that we can, you know, tap into? And one of the needs is to provide housing for traveling nurses. So we are using our model units that are furnished to basically reach out to nurses and we have several links that we know where to go and post housing for traveling nurses also on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis without any premiums. So that's one thing. I would say the other thing is, you know, mainly make sure, like everyone else said, to renew the contract early on. But, you know, another way to do it is, make sure that we can allow tenants to use the security deposits to pay their rents. But obviously I still want to have, you know, I want to be protected. And so we're working with a company that basically can replace those security deposits with an insurance. So let's say someone paid $500 as a security deposit, they can basically use the security deposit money to pay the rent in case they lost their job but they will have to pay between five and $10 a month for at least a year for an insurance policy that would replace those security deposits. So this is just another idea of how we can help our tenants pay rent, you know, on time. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Brian, you've seen this before with SARS and the last recession. How are you responding to this uh, for your properties? Yeah, I've seen it uh, uh, several times. We saw it in Hurricane Harvey in Houston. It was kind of a similar example when the whole city was shut down and there was massive job losses and no evictions because the courts were damaged. So saw it then, saw it in the 2008 recession, obviously. And so we, we've kind of been through this uh, a number of times before. And, you know, we were kind of digging into the same old playbook on a lot of stuff. Essentially, we're doing almost all of the same stuff that all of the panelists have, have discussed before. I think only a couple of things I might add to that that we're also doing. Uh, we are referring people to a program called Project Porchlight. It's a nonprofit agency run through Money Management International that provides counseling on financial matters. And it's landlord friendly. I mean, they understand the concept that you know the first thing you pay for is your housing. And then after that, then you, uh, you have workouts for everything else. So there are uh, workouts for student loan payments. There's workouts for car payments, credit card payments. There's a lot of other variety of forbearance uh, that's out there available to the, uh, the tenants. So, you know, rent really is the last one they should stop paying. And, 
you know, and, and some people are going to be hit by this really, really hard. But for the majority of people, what they have really is not an income problem, but a cash flow problem, at least in the areas where we own. So, you know, thank God we don't own in California anymore. So I don't have to worry about having a bunch of units out there with $4,500 rents. Uh, I think, you know, the highest rent that we have is probably around 14, 14 or $1,500. So, you know, un with that size rent, the uh, $1,200 checks that every individual is going to receive are easily covered. Uh, it's just a matter of when that money comes in. Uh, if they were laid off from their job, there's really good unemployment benefits. There's work share now that they've been paid partial unemployment if your hours are cut. So it's just going to take time for that cash to get into their bank accounts. So we can help solve the cash flow problem by allowing people to postpone some of their rent and maybe we amortize any missed amounts over the course of the next six months uh, or you know maybe it's due uh, the following month depending upon what their ability to pay is. So I'm, I'm not all that concerned about most people's ability to pay. I'm more concerned about their willingness to pay. So what we're doing is we're taking a bit of a different approach, almost the opposite of what Andrew is doing. Andrew is using the, uh, the lure of if you pay, you get a $50 uh, grocery card or a $50 gift card or whatever, you know, some kind of a reward if you pay. And we're actually kind of taking the opposite approach where if you come to us ahead of time, and let's say you've been historically current and you come to us and say, we have an issue, I lost my job, I won't have my helicopter money check for three more weeks and I won't have my uh, unemployment check for two more weeks. I just need time. We're giving them a $50 gift card to the grocery store to say, here's some money, go buy groceries. Hopefully this will tide you over. Uh, we'll work with you. Come back in two weeks and let us know how things are going. You know, the objective here is really, you know, it's, it's partly just being human and trying to help them out in their situation when they're tight. The other part is, is partly psychological where it's like, when they come to the point where they have to decide which bills to pay, and that's really what people are going to come to this decision point where they have to decide what to do, hopefully we'll be a couple rungs higher on the ladder because they'll remember that we took care of them in their time of need. You know, that, that may or may not prove out to be true, but we're trying that among, uh, you know, just the other uh, counseling and other things that you mentioned. That's pretty much it. Most of what, what else we're doing, uh, you guys have already covered. Uh, one, one comment about the payroll protection loans. I saw a question come up uh, in the chat box about it. Somebody asked what it was, and it's a, it's a loan given by the Small Business Administration that basically they'll, they'll loan uh, any business two and a half times their monthly payroll. And if they keep their employees, they can use that money to pay payroll, uh, utilities, loan payments, and a variety of other things. We're definitely applying for that, and, and I think it's going to benefit us because we manage our own property. So all the on-site staff are our employees. I don't know how it's going to work out if you have third-party management, because even though you're paying the freight for those folks, they're not actually your employees. So I think the jury is still out on you know how applicable that's going to be, but for us, I think it'll work out. Uh, those loans are forgiven as long as you keep the employees on staff. So if we take a bit of a haircut in income, then I think, you know, we're still going to come out okay because the triple P will help absorb some of those payroll costs. You know, and maybe we can grant even some partial forgiveness for people that were really having a, a tough time. So those programs kind of just help, you know, buy people time. That's really what we're uh, trying to do.
renewal, lease renewals and retention is really critical. We're focusing a lot of efforts on renewing people with no increase. Uh, we're doing zero rent increases uh, for renewals and doing all we can to save uh, move outs and which ultimately results in saving turnover costs. So I think, you know, that's one more thing that's really important right now. Well, it's great. We left nothing uh, for uh, other two panelists, which is uh, Reed and Drew. But Reed, hey, what's your perspective on this thing? Hey, mate. Um, I, look, I think at the end of the day, it's keeping the hysteria at a manageable rate. Mm. I think we're all going to remember that. The only positive I see right now is this is happening across the world. Multifamily properties in other parts of the world are having the exact same problems. People paying rent in Australia, in Europe, in the United Kingdom. I'd be a lot more concerned if it was just America. So that, there's some silver lining there that we're all in this together. I echo all the things that people have been saying about um, the, the different ways to help. And everyone's going to have their own different special source to it to try and be there for the tenants. But at the end of the day, per Brian's point, is like, who's that top of mind? But, but food and shelter are going to be the two most things that people are going to want to pay for off the top of the bat. Self-storage, I don't know if your self-storage bill is going to get paid this month. You know, there's, there's, other, there's other asset classes out there that might be a little bit uh, lagging that we, we won't get into that because we're not, we're not, we're not self-storage operators. But what I'm seeing is that at the end of the day, we're trying to mitigate the, the expenses, trying to look at these loans, but also just trying to control the hysteria around the whole thing, making sure there's good information on site to the tenants and it's not just hearsay and looking at the cons consistent news cycle that is just a bunch of fear. So um, I think in general, from a high level point of view, um, trying to make things be a bit more understandable, human level. Um, from an employee point of view, from our payroll situation, we are cutting back. One thing that we are doing, we had a couple of actually, just from a specifically to our portfolio, we had a couple of maintenance tech that uh, we need, positions we needed to fill. Given the slowdown of actual only critical work orders that we're doing, we're actually now starting to share maintenance tech around our portfolio, which helps keep people employed for longer rather than having to reduce everyone's hours, um, which is also something to do uh, just more from a human level to keep our folks. We don't have to fire them or we don't have to let them go or reduce their hours. So other little different ways of managing the current staff we have in the portfolio to ensure that everyone has a full paycheck for their own personal house and, and then they can keep their roof over their head and their food on their table. So, so yeah. So uh, people listening to this, uh, if they're owning uh, property, these things that we're talking about are a great way to kind of mitigate some of these risks. There's also passive investors who may be listening to this as well. And they might be kind of going, biting your nails going, oh my gosh, am I going to lose all my money in this thing? Are we going to hell in the handbasket? Are we going to lose these properties? Whatever in foreclosure, like, you know, possibly. And Drew, kind of put a perspective on that. I mean, from a, from a from a an investor's viewpoint, how at risk is their investment through all this? I, I don't. I mean, maybe your IRR has been dinged, right? It was going to be seventeen, and now it's fourteen, or something along those lines. But you know, the unless your property was already being run poorly, COVID is not going to drive it into bankruptcy. I don't think. I mean, we got two trillion dollars in stimulus. Housing is a non-discretionary asset, and most of us are in non-discretionary types of housing. We're not in the class A's that Ellie were referring to. So I don't think that's the case, right? And I was talking to a friend recently. You know, all of us took a 30% paper loss in our stock portfolio. So if we had $100,000 in the market, we're now down to 70000 Everyone, like, you can look online every hour and see how much money you've lost that hour. And one of the great things about this asset class is I can't, like... I still have a building that's 100% occupied and it's still providing the same valuable good and service to my tenants that it was before COVID-19. And 
it's going to still give me a cash distribution right next month. And there's a beauty to the fact that unlike the stock market, we can't check the value of our asset every hour. It, it provides some sort of sanity. Uh, and so I think for the investor out there, for the impassive investor, it's nice to just not, you know, worry yourself sick about the investment every hour looking at the stock value. You know, these are phenomenal asset classes throughout time, throughout recessions, and they will continue to be. Uh, will this have some mathematical impact on, upon your investment? Probably, but is it still a phenomenal asset class with great long-term macroeconomic trends? It absolutely is. So our, our thesis for why we do this is unchanged. Yeah, we, uh, we talked to one of, uh, one of the sellers of the, of the property and, you know, we're, we're sitting there jamming with this guy. And it was like, it was like story hour with Uncle Bob, who owns like 10,000 units. And he was selling us like one of his little crumbs. And it was fascinating. You know, he's, and I, I asked him the question, you know, how, how did you fare in the last recession? And he goes on about his stock portfolio and the cash management and the stops and the hedging he did. And it was, he went on for like 10 minutes. I said, Bob, that's great, Bob. But how does your freaking portfolio do? <laughs> he's like, oh, that was, that was fine. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like a non-event in his mind was a recession. But Ryan, you have some perspective on this. You've been through some of the, you went through Houston and, and SARS and things of that nature. What is your perspective on the impact to investors short, medium, long-term? Well, I think a lot of it depends on who they're invested with, uh, who is in charge of the deal and how that deal is capitalized. You know, that's really what it's going to come down to. If you're invested with a group that is using fairly low leverage, longer term debt, has a solid business plan and is well capitalized and raised plenty of reserves, you're probably going to be just fine. You know, you're going to have a hit to your cash flow. I would expect that most, if not all, sponsors are going to be halting distributions at the next quarterly distribution cycle. If nothing else, just to hoard cash because of the unknowns. So I, I think that's probably going to become fairly universal. If it's not, they should. But if, if you're invested with someone that barely was able to raise, you know, just the dollars needed to close and they're using a high leverage bridge loan that's probably coming due fairly soon, then maybe they had a, you know, one-to-one -one debt coverage ratio going in because they were counting on renovations to carry them and all their renovation money is tied up in the loan where they can't get it released from the lender they may have a tougher go because a lot of the bridge lenders may not be as willing to work with you as Fannie and Freddie are granting um, some uh, extensions on payments, some forbearance on payments if you need it. Uh, nobody knows yet what the bridge lenders are going to do or the CMBS lenders are going to do. And if they won't cut you slack and you have no reserves and your loan's coming due or your cash flow gets compromised by 25%, you know, you could find yourself uh, in foreclosure. So I could see some uh, either undercapitalized or inexperienced sponsors get caught off guard by this. And those investors could see a partial or total loss. I hope that doesn't happen, but I would expect it probably will to a certain extent among some groups. Uh, but I think by and large, most people will come out of this okay. It just won't see the returns that you are expecting. You know, I, I've uh, been saying for a while, you know, when something like this happens, you switch from offense to defense, you know, forget about unit renovations and rent increases and all the things that we, you know, had in the shiny glossy brochure that uh, we hope to see come to fruition if everything went according to plan is out the window. Now it's about 
hoarding cash. Uh, it's about surviving to get to the other side because if I don't lose your money, you'll have it here to invest with me again. So that's really job number one. If it makes you money, then consider that a bonus. The one thing we have that's going to help us in this case is hopefully this is going to be relatively short-lived. I think it's going to be longer than a lot of people think. I mean, there's people out there saying it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. I don't buy it. I think we're going to see you know one to two years of zero to low rent growth. Uh, we're going to see reduced economic occupancies across the board. It's going to take a while to recover from this in a lot of markets, and uh, people need to be ready for that. The landscape has changed. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about about outlook. I want to get perspective on that. I mean, for now, what kind of effect are you seeing on on, on the capital markets, right? So on lending, both Fannie Freddie, uh, JC. I'm going to call on you. <laughs> what you know? What are you seeing? What are you seeing the effect, and what do you think is going to happen with capital markets, both for us owning property, but also possibly for those who are essentially buying property? What are you, what are you seeing happening out there? I'd like to get your perspective on that. Yeah, we've gotten, you know, I think everybody here, you know, all the lenders we've worked with, they, you know, they've been doing, they've been sending out their updates and you've seen it, you know, we had a deal mid-closing that the lender was supposed to close on the 30th of March and they actually said, hey, let's wait till mid-April, end of April. They want to see what's going to happen with the tenant. So, you know, on the the capital side and you've seen it, you know, uh, CMBS lending, bridge lending, you know, some of that stuff has taken a backseat. I think there's more lenders that are you know, the people that are pushing out there will still do it, will still do it. They may be a little bit more predatory, taking advantage of some people that may not know what they're doing. But the agency stuff, you know, interest reserves are going to go up, you know, tax insurance reserves are going to go up. The debt service coverage ratios, you know, they're going to go up. The LTVs are going to go down. And we've seen it. We've seen it just from a standpoint of, uh, you know, all the emails and the updates. And, you know, when you're going into new deals, think about it this way. But in addition to that, interest rates are down, but spreads are wider. So interest rates haven't come down the way that, you know, they were four weeks ago or six weeks ago when you could borrow money, you know, 10-year money at three and a half percent. We refinanced the deal for about a month ago, like a three, seven rate. That rate today is mid fours, if not higher, you know, give or take. But um, I think this is the slap in the face or the punch in the face that, you know, unfortunately had to happen to, you know, because there was some crazy, for lack of a better term, crazy shit going on. Just lenders basically just giving people money and, you know, five sponsors coming together to do a deal. And those deals, you know, were getting done because it was easy. I have lender friends that would call me and there were people calling up saying, you know, what's a cap rate? Is this a good deal? Asking the lender that opinion. And those deals were getting funded and closed. So I think that this is the thing that, you know, maybe it's the straw that broke the camel's back where, just so it's not like 2007 to 2009 where the lenders were just giving anyone loans and it wasn't on the commercial side as much as the residential and all that. But I think this is the thing is that, wait a second, guys, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's, let's vet the sponsors a little bit harder, you know, make sure they have the cash. You know, one thing that we do and, and, you know, as Brian mentioned, you know, we are going into our deals extremely well capitalized. And I think everybody here does that. And, and that's something that I know sponsors that are like, oh, we only need a million to close and we're going to raise the CapEx, you know, over the next eight months. And that to me is, is always scary. You know, listen, I, I get it. It makes the IRR better. And if you have the ability to do it, you do it. But if the money's not there in the future and you need it, it, it hurts. And I think lenders are going to, you know, open their eyes up a little bit more to that. And, you know, they're going to, they're going to cut back a little bit. And, and we've already spoken to, you know, a ton of the lenders we've worked with, you know, Hey, what, you know, going forward, what do you want to see and all that stuff. And we've used that propaganda and that marketing, you know, to sellers and saying, Hey guys, times have changed. Your deals are not the same. I even heard one lender, 
I think he did a, a report on it talking about, you know, appraisers and cap rates going up a point. You just, you know, they want to be extra safe. And I think that's just going to inevitably put a little bit of a strain on the market where, you know, maybe it's not as readily available as it was, or it's not going to be as, as much as it once was. We're seeing lenders require 12 plus, you know, months of reserves suddenly. The LTV is going from whatever, 80 down to 75%, right? So that obviously is going to change prices and valuation. Ellie, what kind of effect are you seeing from sellers? How are sellers reacting? And is that creating a buying opportunity for you? Or, or do you feel like it's kind of like, a, hey, let's just see what happens? Yeah, so I think I think it's a very interesting when it comes to sellers. We definitely see many more off-market deals right now. We actually have a lot on on our plate right now. A lot of sellers understand that it's going to work against them if they're going to take the deal through the usual six to nine months process if they market the deal. Some of them are freaked out because of you know this uh, environment and they just want to sell. And so we see that. On the other hand. We also see some sellers that they're not willing to reduce the price. And obviously there is a risk, even though it might not last for three or two years, but there is a risk and this risk should be quantified to some extent. And that should be baked into the price because the price, you know, there's always a risk and you assess it to the best of your ability. And this is something we've never dealt with before. So we're unsure even how to quantify it. I think Probably in 45 days from now, we'll have financials of April and May, and we'll be able to have a bit more clarity. All we can do is guess. We're talking right now, it's April 1st. The the day is not over yet. We don't know how many tenants actually paid and how many are going to put on the payment plan, but we definitely see a shift in the market. The market has changed overnight from a seller's market to a buyer's market. I, I get a lot of emails from brokers saying, what is the price you're willing to pay? Well, you know, the seller is open to negotiate. So we definitely see something we haven't seen, you know, in years, yeah. you know, and, and you asked me also the second part of your question about an opportunity. I think a deal can be an opportunity as long as you're able to assess the risk and the unknown. If you cannot assess the risk, if you cannot assess the unknown, how would you know if the price cut is enough to cover for the loss in, you know, in income in the next 12 months? You just don't know. So I see a lot of fear from investors out there. And I always say in any investment, there should be no feelings, no emotions. This is a deal. So you shouldn't be afraid or have any fear involved with, you know, making a deal or or joining a syndicator the same way that you shouldn't be excited about a deal because the building is beautiful. These are two emotions and they should be out of, you know, the Take the, these emotions out of the equation and focus on the numbers. Does it make sense? You know, the income makes sense and does the price make sense? And understand, you know, how the property actually performed during, you know, April and May, which are, I hope these are going to be the only two hard months, but nobody can really know. Never know. You know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, like you said, it changed overnight. I mean, we had a deal where we were putting, we had to, you know, how to put the deposit EMD hard and we're like, oh, I don't know if we should do that. And all these deals are hard money down and all of a sudden evaporated. You know, sellers are no longer insisting on hard money down. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Reed, uh, what are you seeing out there with your sellers and some of the deals you're pursuing? Because one of the things is like, we're always so frustrated about our inability to, for these deals to pencil. And I feel like it's shifting and changing. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, so I think two things. How do we all see this coming is, is probably a big thing. We didn't. 
It's a very weird disease that came out of China. And so it wasn't a systemic issue, but we're not going to get into whether this is covering up systemic issues in, in regards to the, the debt market. So we'll put that to one side. But in terms of the selling and the buying side, I think it's going to be interesting. We were definitely gearing up to sell a couple of deals this year. And how we're talking with our brokers throughout the week. How do we go moving forward to discount the deal or, or write off the rent roll that's going to be now baked and, and we're going to have a hit to it? How do you go show that come June, July, August, you know, coming to the end of Q2, Q, Q3, Q4? And what does that mean as a seller? Now, as a buyer, I definitely want to see a discount. <laughs> but as a seller, do I want to see that discount? Coming to the fact that, okay, March financials were great. Okay, April, May, June, they might be a bit discounted. We have to put them to one side or we have to factor them up or factor them down. I've definitely seen uh, three or four deals we've offered on, uh, we've been working on since February, uh, where the whisper price when you first walked the deal was at 40 million bucks. And now all of a sudden they'll take 33. You're like, well, <laughs> that's great. So it's, it's, it, it's a little bit of, it's going to be interesting to see both from a seller's point of view and a buyer's point of view. Buying point of view, I think there's going to be great opportunity. From a seller's point of view, it's going to be a lot harder. And how are you going to discount your rent roll, your P&L and all that sort of stuff? And how are you going to sell that to the next buyer? And I think there's going to be a bit of a standoff period where new buyers are going to say, well, we're going to want you to, to discount it. And we're going to want you to, to, to sell it to us based on the current financials and the sellers myself included, and probably some of the other people on this call that we have assets we want to sell. We're going to have this sort of standoff for a period of time. And it's going to come, it'll be time that will pass. And then someone will have to grit, you'll come and meet somewhere in the middle, whether that happens quickly or whether it happens over a period of time. It's, it really depends on how much money you have on hand and if the asset is cash flowing in order to make um, you know, cash distributions. So, yeah. Drew Niffen, from a passive investing standpoint, right? And we know it from, no one's doing anything right now. Everyone's like, you know, sucking their thumb in the corner, waiting to see what's, what's going to happen. But what should the passive investor be doing or thinking right now in the short term? Should they invest? Should they sit tight? I mean, what do you think? Well, one of the, one of the beauties is that you don't have much of a choice, right? I mean, going back to what I was saying before, if, if you want to, if you're a passive investor in the stock market, you sell because you're scared. Right now, you're sort of locked in a five-year illiquid investment. So, you know, as everyone was saying here, I think that there are good buying opportunities. We were on an acquisitions call this morning where the seller just knocked about 10K off every unit. They're like, ah, Per we'll unit? Per yeah. unit, it was like 80,000 or right. 90, I don't know. Like, oh, nice. Oh, I'll take, I'll take 10 less. <laughs> right. And, and of course, the financing terms are, are way better, right? We can, we can put in a financing contingency or things like that, maybe not earn us money. So the point is, there are better buying opportunities now than there was before, which means for the passive investor, there is more opportunities to, to invest in quality deals. And I'd say the passive investor is probably like, oh, you know, I just lost 30% in the market. So maybe if I have a 10% IRR, this sounded really good in comparison to what your alternatives are for your dollar. So for the passive investor, I think if you're already invested, well, hopefully you chose a good operator because you're, you're saddled up with them for the ride, for the duration of the investment. And if you're looking to put money to work, then it's a matter of doing your due diligence on your operator. And importantly, as uh, I think it was Cushman was talking about, or maybe it was Brian, how well capitalized are they? And also, like, what financing product are they choosing to use? If it's a 24-month expiration, then you got a gun to your head to sell at 24 months. Whereas if there are extensions and if there is not yield maintenance, then the operator can choose their time to sell as opposed to having their selling time dictated by their, their debt product. So I want to pull out the crystal ball. We're going to do a little fire round here before we take some questions from the audience. And our lovely Kate is going to help us with that. But I want to get your perspective on the crystal ball. What do you expect? Short-term, medium-term, long-term? Brian, go. I'm oh, sorry. Time's up. Um, we'll go on to our next contestant. 
<laughs> Brian, what do you think, man? <clears throat> I always value your perspective because you've been doing this for a long time. You do so much crap and you really study the, the markets. So I, I, I'd love to see uh, what, you, what you think about that. Well, I think short term, uh, obviously, we're going to all feel a little bit of pain. I think transaction velocity is going to grind to near zero. The only sellers that are going to be in the market are going to be those that have to sell. Anybody that just wants to sell will just wait. We were going to sell 1,000 units this year. Uh, we closed on 276, and then I had one deal fall out, and I had another we were just taking offers on when the whole thing hit the fan, and we're just going to press pause on that one for right now because uh, we're not under any pressure to sell any asset. And that's what's important about being well capitalized and having the proper debt structure. You can wait this kind of thing out. So I know a lot of people have said, oh, there's going to be this great buying opportunity. Real estate's going to be 50% off. Uh, I doubt it. You know, there might be a few deals that are really good that come across from people who just have to sell for whatever reason. So you might see some of that in the short term, but by and large, transaction velocity is going to grind to a halt until we can all learn how to quantify the future. Right now, we're all trying to figure out what is physical and economic occupancy? What is rent growth? And what is that going to look like, you know, six months and a year and two years from now? So until we can get a better handle on that, most of us are waiting. I'm under no pressure to buy anything either. So we're not buying anything right now unless something really incredible came along. In the midterm, I think you'll see transaction velocities will slowly ramp up. I think that incomes are going to take a hit for a while simply because it's going to take a while for these jobs to rebuild. I mean, the things that drive multifamily real estate more than anything else is income growth, job growth, and population growth. And there's been a little bit of income growth in some sectors because, you know, they're like grocery stores have been giving people raises for hazard pay, but that might disappear job growth, uh, we're in way negative right now, but that will come back. Population growth, people aren't really moving around. So not right now. They might have scuttled their plans to move. And so that's going to be slow. Uh, some employment sectors are going to be slow to ramp back up. I mean, people aren't just going to all of a sudden start flooding onto airplanes and hotels as soon as they lift all the shelter in place orders. It's going to take a while for people to feel comfortable traveling again and going to restaurants and Maybe they don't have the money for that vacation. So a lot of that's going to take time to, uh, to come back. And markets like Las Vegas, for example, may have a really steep road to recovery because they got hit so hard from, and they're so travel and um, conference and event focused that, you know, events have been canceled out six to eight months out. And, it, you know, some uh, people are going to virtual events and there might not be as many events. So all of those things are going to have a role to play in the recovery. And then in the long term, we're going to be just fine. I mean, you know, two years from now, we'll kind of look back on this and chuckle about how we survived, you know, the COVID-19 collapse. And everybody on this call will, in the subsequent recessionary time, will be talking about the experience they had uh, in the moment we're experiencing right now. Uh, I think uh, those of us who are here that are you know, are on this call are all doing it right. And we're well capitalized and well financed, which means... Uh, we'll survive and uh, we'll be here to live another day and, and tell all kinds of cool stories and grow as a result because there'll be a lot of guys that do what we do that won't survive this. And, you know, we'll be, uh, we'll be there to fill up that void. We'll be buying all their stuff. Ellie, what's your crystal yeah. ball? So I think, you know, in a short term, basically there will be pain. I used to think it's going to be a V shape. That was a few weeks ago. I don't think so anymore. I think we're looking at a U shape. So, you know, 
similar to what was said here before, I think it's going to take time for jobs to restore. I think it's interesting to see if you can at least see where your properties are and see how much the unemployment changed um, and, um, and basically what portion of the workforce is actually being employed by small businesses. That would give you a good insight into how much, you know, what impact to expect from your property. Uh, and that's what we were looking at, all the reports to see where, where our properties are located. Um, so I think probably in the next uh, 30 to 90 days, we're going to feel it, the, you know, feel the pain the most, people being laid off, uh, higher delinquencies probably. And then I think in the midterm, we're going to see a slow, you know, uh, rebound. I think in the long term, we're going to be just fine. Uh, and I really like, you know, the flexibility of not being forced to sell now, which is why every time we buy a property, let's say we plan to hold it for five years, we take a loan for seven or 10 years. So if a loan is due, let's say in a month from now, I can still hold the property for two more years or one more year and I'm not forced to sell now. So just, you know, being very, you know, conservative with, especially with around the debt structure and the terms that can really help you kind of weather the storm. Um, so I think, I think we're going to be just fine. And again, if, uh, if you're well capitalized, you might not see 8% cash on cash, you know, this year, but you're going to see six, I would say you were doing a good job. And hopefully in a year to two years from now, we'll be able to compensate for um, the decrease in, um, you know, in returns. Well, even if you take zero cash on cash, you're not seeing a 33% reduction in capital, which is, uh, which is a plus also. JC, what do you, what do you see uh, ahead? I, I, you know, I, I agree. I think, you know, the immediate impact is going to suck, you know, over the next 30 to 120 days, 90 days. Uh, we don't know, right? You know, no one knows. Uh, early on, I was on the opinion of, you know, everyone nowadays has short-term memory loss, you know, we'll be bounced back by June. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that, you know, with all the job loss and the continued job loss and now more states, you know, there's, I think 45 states are on shelter in place. I tell people multifamilies about jobs, jobs, jobs. So, you know, with all that stuff going away, it's going to take some time to ramp up. So I think short term is going to be painful, right? We're all going to get kicked in the teeth. It's a, you know, it's a 12 round boxing match right now. And, you know, we're in round one and, you know, we got knocked to our knees, but we're going to get back up. I'm not worried about it. You know, I think it'll be slow getting back to where it is. And as Brian said, you know, two years from now, you know, we'll all be laughing and talking about COVID-19. You know, we all weathered the storm. I'm happy I didn't get involved in real estate, you know, three months ago. And I've been doing it for a little bit because, uh, I got a little bit of a, you know, a springboard to, you know, try and see what this is like compared to some other times. So I think short term will be, you know, rough middle will be, you know, everyone will be rocking and rolling. And then, uh, you know, two years from now, it's going to be, you know, you know, in the past. I think, I think it's going to be rough in the short term for owning property. I think it is going to, it's going to rattle or lose some, some buying opportunity. I am absolutely convinced of that. And anyone who's well capitalized, like I know everyone in this call is, we're gonna we're gonna take advantage of that situation for for sure. I, Fishman, I say what do all you think? the time, a deal's a deal, right? Oh, yeah. A deal's a deal. I mean, look, fundamentals, right? Fundamentals are fundamentals, uh, and, and and we know that maybe in the short term they may be whacked, but in the medium to long term, we know the fundamentals are there. So if we can pick up a deal right now for ten thousand dollars less than five days ago. <laughs> you know, okay, it probably is gonna it, it may be a good deal. Plus, we're not putting down hard money and we still have 12 months reserve that we have to raise capital for and the numbers still work, I'm in, right? I'm in because the risk is off the table. Cushman, what do you, what do you think? What do you see coming? Yeah, I, you know, for short term, I would echo what everyone else says. It's going to be painful. How painful it is depends on how good of an operator you are 
and uh, how proactive you've been and to a large degree kind of what your tenant base is like. So yeah, short term is going to be painful. I will say one, one big ray of hope in this is in 2007 and 2008, if you went to their lender, their attitude was screw you. Whereas now the lenders are proactive and they're coming to everyone and say, oh, hey, 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 let's do forbearance. Let's try to work this out, right? Because they don't want to end up owning 90% of the property in the United States in the next six months. Uh, so the short, short term is going to be painful no matter what. You know, midterm, I agree with Ellie. I think this is more of a, a, a U-shaped deal where we drop down, we bottom out, and it's going to be a long, slow recovery. I think COVID is going to be around for 12, 18, 24 months before we really get a handle on it. I think this is going to come in waves. I'll skip to long term and then come back. Long term, this we're going to look back on this as a wealth building opportunity, right? I mean, almost everyone on this call and everyone out there is like, oh, I can't get a good deal. Well, guess what? Good deals are going to come. They're going to come from the people who unfortunately aren't good operators, who aren't well capitalized, who aren't getting ahead of this and are just going to kind of all of a sudden wake up three months from now and go, oh, wait, I don't have any income. What's going on? How do I fix this? Too late, right? And that's going to provide opportunities for those who are well capitalized. And, and, you know, for someone who's like just beginning and who hasn't even gotten into this, this is what you've been waiting for, right? Because now you can take the next three to six months, get an education, get capitalized and be ready to jump on opportunities. I would recommend a little bit of caution though in the midterm and not to be too anxious to jump on deals. Because, you know, when, when I go back to 2007 and 2008, April 20, 2007, New Century failed in California. That was, the, that was the shot across the bow, right? By the end of the year, the stock market started to collapse. The Fed was cutting rates. And then on March of 2009, the stock market bottoms at less than half of what it was. And I saw people buy apartments early on or any real estate early on thinking they were getting a great deal a couple of months in. And then a year later, they were foreclosed on and the property was up for sale for even less, right? So, you know, getting into the emotions, don't be fearful, but also don't get too excited. And, and don't, when a market's going up, it's better to sell a day early than to sell a day late. But when it's going down, it's better to buy a day late than to buy a day early right? So when you look at real estate moves slow, like Drew was saying, you can log on to your stock account and see that you lost 20% yesterday. Well, real estate, it takes a long time to kind of work through. I see deals starting to really show up six, nine, and 12 months down the road. Again, going back to the last recession, when I look at some of the amazing deals that we bought, it was in 2010, 11, and 12, not one and two months into the crash. And so again, long-term, we start, you know, three, four, five, 10 years down the road. Most of us are going to look back and go, man, that was tough, but wow, it was a wealth building opportunity once we got through it. And so that's, that's how I'm looking at this is, okay, the next few ro next few months are going to be really difficult, but man, surviving this is going to make us so much better operators. You get through this, you're going to be able to handle anything, especially when the times are good. And then when things bottom out and we start improving and jobs come back and all and things normalize, the wealth opportunities are going to be huge. So that's kind of how we're looking at it. So uh, before we call on Reed and Drew here, I think we've kind of beat this one to death here. I think the consensus is there's going to be some pain short, short term, long term, it's going to be great and it's going to rattle loose some buying opportunities. So let's take some questions and then we'll call on Reed and Drew to answer those questions for us. Kate, what do you got for us? All right, uh, where we want to go? Facebook group. Let's see. To all the panelists, are we learning a new way or angle to stress test acquisitions with the current environment? Reed, what do you yeah. think? Yes, hundred percent. I think one thing that we've always done is over raised for operating accounts, over raised for capex accounts historically. 
Um, I think you're going to see a lot more people doing that. People sort of joked at us when we did it two or three, four years ago. Um, it obviously reduces the IRR, but you have more capital on hand for these rainy day events. You're going to see a lot more of that happening now, I think, and a lot more requirements from the banks to have that happen. So I think it's going to force us to be better. So, yeah. Yeah, and there's a question from Mauricio on, on the Zoom here. Is I got my first offer accepted. Sell agreed to extend due diligence from 30 to 60 days, accepted financing contingency. Is there anything else I should try and negotiate before signing the, the PA? So Yes. <laughs> what do you think, Reed? You've got to get into the units. So don't, don't be signing any PSAs if you haven't got into at least 50% of the units. I, I wouldn't be going down. Like, that's the biggest thing now. So if everyone's still shelter in place and you're buying in a state or a city that is shelter in place, don't be, oh, we're just going to the vacant units and that's it. No, you want to be seeing at least 50% of the units before you sign anything. The only thing I say about that is uh, one of the things that he did is he, he basically mitigated the risk. So we don't have hard EMD from day one. That's a major risk gone. We never had financing contingencies. That's insane. Like I can't remember where we did not have, when we you know, had financing contingencies. Now sellers are agreeing to financing contingencies. That's great. So, and, and you're extending the, the diligence from 30 to 60 days, which is important because you have logistical problems of lenders being actually to fly to the property, right? Like the, actually getting there is going to be a problem. If you can mitigate your risk in that way, I think it's a great way to get in the deal. And two, three months from now, you know, if you have your a 60, 90 day due diligence period, it really gives you flexibility to get out for almost any reason. Again, you're, you got to pay attention to the retraining uh, on these things. But I think we can get into deals by mitigating our risk in a proper way. And that's kind of what I like about this. Kate, what other questions do we have here? Maybe for Drew Niffen, who looks like he's ready for a question. With the secondary market frozen, how would you expect banks to hold their own paper to capitalize on the commercial loan demand. Historically speaking, what red flags are there for predatory lending from community banks, credit unions, when they are the only game in town for small multis titled in LLCs outside of HML? Well, that's a lot of words in a, in a, in a series. Uh, let me dust off my economics PhD there. Um, so like we have coaching students, we have people that have done deals with community banks. You know, you get higher interest rates. Sometimes the loans are recourse to you individually. Uh, you get 25 year amortizations, but you usually don't have any prepayment, you know, penalties. And if they're the only game in town, then God bless them. Let them charge their rates and see if you can make a deal. Like I don't, I don't have any problem with them doing that. That, is, that's, that doesn't feel predatory to me at all. When underwriting a new deal, what vacancy factor would you use and how would you adjust the cap rate for market risk? This is what Brian said a minute ago. You know, like it's almost hard to buy a deal because you don't know what the numbers are. You yeah, don't yeah. know, is the fallout going to, like we, we got on some phone calls with our onsite managers just to get April 1st data on collections and how many tenants are, you know, turning in letters saying they lost their jobs to COVID-19. But all that is is soft anecdotes. We really don't have data. And so it's pretty hard to underwrite right now, which is what Brian said, which is absolutely true. So do you increase your vacancy by 5% or 15%? You can make an argument for either one. And the consequence of that decision are monumental as far as the numbers. So the short answer is there's not good information on how much to change your vacancy rates by or your, your rent growth numbers by. It's, it's hard for us to know right now. I would just add to that and say that it's going to be very difficult to underestimate 
what that performance is going to look like. I mean, you know, it's like you, if you think that it's going to be uh, 8% vacancy and you decided to use 15% vacancy, you could still be surprised and find that it's 20% economic vacancy. So I, I don't think that um, you want to be very aggressive right now. At least I sure wouldn't be. And I think to your point you've made before, Brian, on the year-on-year rental growth, that's going to take a massive hit from market to market. And, and again, we won't know that data straight away. So I'd be looking very carefully at the, your year-on-year growth as you model out new deals for five, seven, 10 years' time. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, what else we got? Yeah. There's a couple questions here about student housing. Anybody have any comments about that before I would ask any of those questions? We have, we have one student deal that uh, schools are closed, kids are gone. Uh, there's parent guarantees in the leases. Uh, you know, we're on the opinion the parents aren't gonna let their kids credit go to shit. And so they'll pay. In addition to that, we are at, it's outside of Nashville. So we're reaching out to hospitals and stuff like that if they need extra beds, if, this, if the building's vacant. We have you know, already prefab rooms. So we've already spoken to some people saying, hey, if you need an extra, you know, it's 72 units. And with, with, you know, 155 beds. So we're, we're trying to turn, uh, you know, lemons into lemonade because of the situation. But that's our one student deal. Uh, it's a local community bank. They've been amazing to work with so far. You know, he, was, he called us and said, hey, no payments for three months. We understand that, you know, no, you know it's different. So that's the one deal we have. And we're going to see how it shakes out. But other than that, I think luckily, you know, the time that we're at, School year was ending. So if you did year leases, maybe have a little bit of a higher vacancy. If you're doing just like semester by semester leases, you were going to be vacant, you know, coming up here in the next 30 days anyway. So, you know, you might, you might skate through it because I do believe by the, by August and September of next year, schools will be open and kids will be back and they'll need a place to live. So I think uh, student housing is going to, you know, it should be okay in, in the grand scheme of things pending, you know, you have the parental guarantees and, you know, you're making sure that, you know, all the stuff that you would qualify a tenant with. We feel really good about it. We actually you know, are not worried about that deal at all. Awesome. So the next question I have, and uh, Michael, I'm not sure who you're throwing this one to, but do you see the stock market woes helping or hurting our ability to raise money? Should equity partners become more negotiable on pref and splits? <laughs> who wants to answer that? I'm sure you have some opinion, opinion about that. Brian looks I'll, like- I'll take answer. this one. Ellie, Ellie and Brian will <laughs> take this one. Um, so I think, again, it's pretty early to know. On one hand, you're going to have a lot of investors that just lost a bunch of money in the stock market, so they're not going to be as liquid. On the other hand, some more capitalized um, investors are probably going to look at the stock market and say, hey, I just lost half a million dollars or $200,000, whatever it is. I feel more comfortable uh, investing in multifamily. So I actually have, it's kind of a mixed, you know, mixed bag of um, approaches. I have investors that said, I'm going to wait on the sidelines. And I have investors that reached out and actively asked me, do you have a deal? We have capital, we need to deploy it. We don't want to put it in a stock market. So I think it's kind of, it, it depends on your investor, you know, database, um, kind of the mix of where they come from, how well capitalized they are. To the second part of the question about GPLP split, I think, I, I don't know yet, but I think the main thing is what we're focusing on right now is that the deal fundamentals are working. 
and once the deal is is a solid deal, so the project there's a project return, and then there's the passive investors return. So if the project returns are pretty solid, if the project let's say there you were the only person who buys the deal, and the project the the building is basically let's say it's it's a six percent cash on cash or seven percent cash on cash that's the yield on average then it doesn't matter um, how much you're going to change the split between lps and gps it will not produce more than that seven percent so the main focus is on the project returns i think it's a little bit too early to start playing around with gplp split but i would caution the you know investors that are listening to us don't be tempted to go with a very lucrative you know equity split it doesn't matter if it's 955 if the sponsor is not experienced if the deal fundamentals are not solid it doesn't matter you're not gonna you know you're more likely to not see your return so just focus instead of the equity split in the fees focus on the strength of the and the track record of the sponsor i think that's uh, more important yeah, Ellie's exactly right. And and uh, we, uh, about a week and a half ago, I, I gave my VP of investor relations the task of reaching out to our investors. So we sent an email out to our investors. And I think within three hours, he had about 500 calls scheduled. And so we've literally been talking to all of our investors. And so far, the feedback that we're getting about 80% of them are still interested in in opportunities. Uh, I would say maybe 30 or 40% of them think, wow, this is the time I've been waiting for. But the rest of them are just, hey, you know, if I was shown the right opportunity, I would invest in it. About 20% of them are saying either one of two answers. No, I'm hoarding cash. I'm not doing anything. My money's in my mattress. Or they're saying, uh, gosh, you know, I saw the stock market fall and I think there's some opportunities for me to invest in equities. So I'm going to focus on that for a while. So, you know, it's a mix across the board, but I'd say 80% still looking for real estate. And really quickly, I just want to double back to a question from a minute ago uh, related to the local banks and their ability to lend. I just want to close the loop on that one. The issue is, is that banks originate loans. And if they get stuck with those loans on their balance sheet and they can't sell them to someone else, they don't have capital to lend. So what you're going to find is local banks may shut off multifamily lending completely. Uh, and you just won't see them uh, making those loans. So that means that, you know, before you could go to a local bank or a credit union, you chose the local bank because the credit union was more expensive. Uh, now, since the credit union got no business, they have no loans on their books, but the bank is all stocked up, they pull out. So now the only one left is the credit union because they still have some dry powder left. So it means you're going to have to make a lot more phone calls. And if that doesn't pan out, you're going to have to look at uh, hard money lenders and private lenders, and even they're going to have more restrictions than they previously would have. So the lending climate is going to shift out there quite a bit. And I just wanted to kind of close the loop on that one little piece of that question that was left unanswered. Andrew and Reed, the average investor, either they've done a deal, they've invested in a deal, they haven't invested. What should we do be doing right now? Number one, educating. Two, don't get too, um, like I said, too excited about, oh, cool, this thing was 100 a unit and now it's 90 a unit. Because you know what? By the end of the year, it might be 70 a unit. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that's 
definitely going to happen, but there's a, def a strong possibility of that. So now, really, now is the opportunity. Let's say you've, let's say you've got two, three, four, five months to not buy a deal. That's when you get educated. That's when you line up your investors. That's when you call the people you talk to and say, look, we've been waiting for this for years. We haven't been able to get a great deal. They are coming. Are you going to be ready? Do I have your information? Uh, you know, fill out my investor form, build that list, start looking at deals. If you haven't been doing that, start underwriting deals so that, you know, the, the best way to, to spot a really good deal fast is to look at a thousand that suck, right? And when you see that good one, you're going to know it. Develop your parameters. What kind of properties are you looking at? Uh, is it 10 unit? Is it 100 unit? What markets? Um, you know, what kind of A, B, or C? Do all of that now. So that when the really good deals do start to shake loose, you are ready to jump on it and capitalize. That's, that's what I, and I mean, that, that's, that's what we're doing. And we've been doing this for 12 years is we're just trying to go through and just, you know, everything we can do to lay the groundwork to really capitalize on the next up cycle that's going to start after this. And for a new investor, this is a perfect opportunity to do that exact same thing. I will add to, the, to that that we're all at the same starting gates right now is that we're all confined to our homes. When we do get released, it's going to be you've got to look at the markets that are going to have the quickest out of the gate. Like who's going to come back, what, what events, what concerts, what bars, what sh you know, shops, retail, what spending is going to come back quickly and what markets are those. And then focusing on those markets to then maybe look at deals to what Andrew Cushman was just saying and continuing to underwrite deals in particular markets that you've chosen, but also understanding how your market that you have chosen is going to get out of the gate once we get these restrictions lifted. That's going to be really important because we won't be able to get back to normalcy if you're stuttering along and no one gets out and no one starts spending. So that's really important as well. I want to thank all of you guys Good for time. being on this, on this panel. I know your time is super valuable and I thank you for sharing your unbelievable experience here uh, on this, on this interview as well. So I want to thank you all so much for being here. I'm going to stick around just on my own if anybody wants to ask questions, but you guys, I'm going to, I'm just going to dismiss you. And I appreciate all of you guys for, uh, for being on this call. So thank you. Thank you all so much. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for the Thanks. invite. Thank you. I appreciate Thanks, it. Yeah, Ben. Thanks, brother. Bye. All right. For any other, any other questions, uh, let me know. Kate, uh, I'd be happy to answer some of those questions. And uh, one of the things you heard on this call was the best thing you can do right now, and I totally agree with this, is to really take the time to educate yourself. Because we have an unprecedented thing right now where we, maybe we shouldn't be buying anything uh, and, and we're at home and we have all this extra time. What should we do with our time? And, you know, as uh, Josh Thomas likes to say, now is the time to shift. It is the perfect time to shift. We have time and we are waiting for the opportunity. We have probably a couple months to get ready for unprecedented opportunity during that time. It's a great time to educate yourself, whatever that means to you. And it also uh, is a great time to start getting investors lined up. And uh, if you want to connect, by the way, if you want to connect with an uh, unbelievable group of other investors, uh, I would strongly encourage you guys to join the Dealmaker Mastermind that we have. It's, we've had it for years. It's super affordable. It's like $49 a month. We have several hundred people in there. It's an online forum where you can network with other people. We've had multiple companies come out of it, joint ventures come out of that. Someone founds a deal, they network with someone who raises the money. And it's a great way for you to connect and build your network, your support network. Uh, your network of peers, you can build out of that a, a mastermind, you know, like I have. Uh, most of the people on this call were actually in my own personal mastermind that I built up over the years. And you can do the same thing in Dealmaker Mastermind. So if you want to do that, it's only 49 bucks a month. It's super affordable. And most people laugh at how much I charge for this stuff, but I don't really care because I want to help you become financially free. 
And now is a great time to start educating yourself, learning, connecting with other people. So if you want to do that, you can learn more about that at themichaelblank.com forward slash DMM for Dealmaker Mastermind. And we call our tribe essentially a dealmaker. So if you want to be a dealmaker, check it out. Join us. It's uh, forward slash DMM. Hey, uh, Kate, what, uh, what other questions do you have for, uh, for me? What can I answer? And make it quick because I'm, I'm all out of wine. So I, I, need, a, I need to get a refill. Uh, you know, we had a question that came in early. Somebody was asking about what long-term impact do you see this having on construction, uh, labor, and how will that affect or factor in the supply of new buildings? I think I'm seeing people still, construction is considered essential. I read that construction is considered an essential service and it's yeah. not uh, affected by the yeah. shutdown. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. We see construction going on pre predominantly outside on the exteriors and the in on the interiors. It's, it is uh, restricted, uh, but we're still doing getting ex uh, interior work done as, as well. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not an economist, frankly. I don't really know about new construction. All I do know is that in times of recession, selling new shiny objects uh, at a very high price is, uh, is going to be a challenge. And so this is really why I buy cash flowing properties in general. So I, I don't know how that's going to affect things, but uh, those are, those are my main concerns about ground up development. I've heard that the memoratorium on eviction is only effective if the owner enters into forbearance. Is this true? No, no, it's, it's not. I mean, it's, it, it has nothing to do with each other. There's a moratorium and people are just governments, local governments are not processing evictions. Um, if, if those are due to, uh, COVID uh, displacement in, in, some, in some way. And for practical matters, it doesn't really matter because it's going to be very difficult for you to prove whether someone didn't pay their rent because they lost your job or because they just decided not to pay the rent. So that's kind of what we talked about on the, on the call here as well. But those, are, those are, are two separate things. The only way they're related is a forbearance requires that you not evict anybody over the term of the loan. In other words, if it takes you six months to repay the loan, then you can't evict anyone in six months. And so a lot of us are eyeing the forbearance at, with a suspicious eye because it's an example of how the government uh, will be able to control what we do or don't do. Having said that, if, you know, if, if it gets really bad, then a forbearance is exactly what we're going to do because it's going to help us uh, pay or not pay for the mortgage for a time being. And so we'll put up for it. For right now, the way we're sitting right now is probably not something that we'll uh, take advantage of except for a case-by-case -case basis. All right. Do you foresee future growth on the, on the secondary and tertiary market since the pandemic has shown us that being in a tight urban environment is ripe for increased exposure and risk? Yeah, I mean, that's an argument for secondary tertiary. It's, you know, it's less dense. <laughs> so that's a good point. You know, actually, now that you mentioned it, I haven't thought about it in that way. Uh, we invest in secondary and tertiary markets because there's a lot of, uh, first of all, there's less demand from a buy side and there's a lot of people moving into particular areas. We want to take advantage of that. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think the, the impact of the pandemic is going to be limited in some of these areas. It literally depends on the economic makeup of the particular area, right? For example, how dependent is it on retail or travel or entertainment or, or restaurants or anything uh, that, that, that sense? So really, it's going to be slightly dependent on that. Okay. Uh, there's a bunch of different questions here that are answer, asked in different ways about what um, what are the in your mind what defines a really good deal in this environment and what are you you know um, we have another question that says you know with the current climate which area of acquisition process do we place the most importance on is it price expensive pro forma rent roll etc 
So lots of different ways that people are asking you how you're analyzing, you know, what you're, how you're analyzing deals right now. So the good news is we're seeing buying opportunities right now. Okay. That's, that's the good news. We're seeing opportunities we literally did not see five days ago. Uh, and, and, and one of the most recent ones this morning where, you know, we were, we had a deal and we're like, this doesn't pencil at all. It's at 90,000 a unit. All of a sudden now it's at 80,000 unit. Five days later, 10, and this is a 200, I don't know, 276. So it's a massive number that all of a sudden the seller, and we found out why the seller bought this thing in 2014. It was a value add deal. And they're going to make a bullload of money, whether they sell at 90, 80, 70, or 60. Okay. You know what I mean? They're going to make a bunch of money. And they're like, dude, I'm done. I'm out of this thing. The only question becomes is how do you underwrite this deal back to what Brian Burke was saying is what occupancy, what rent growth, what the hell do you use? Like, what do you put in the syndicated deal analyzer to kind of project your growth? And that's kind of the unknown. The way we're kind of approaching this right now is if we can get into a deal with a 60 to 90 day due diligence period without a financing, uh, with, without hard money down from day one and with a financing contingency, we can take on a lot of these deals because if say 60 days goes by and the rents go down significantly, obviously everybody that does any, any as sophisticated will know for sure that the valuation is now lower. So retrading, retrading in that kind of environment is, is well understood and I suppose to some degree tolerated. In fact, it's, we're, we're selling three properties right now. One of them, they're already starting to retrade. They're, they started this process about five days ago and they're gonna retrade the heck out of us. The only decision we have to make is do we wanna continue retrading with these guys or do we wanna say, hey, go pound sand, we're gonna keep your deposit at one point and we're just gonna wait and, and, and run it out. But what I'm saying is if you can mitigate your risk and get into deals right now, use conservative underwriting and make sure you don't lose any money and if the market really goes south, the NOI really goes south, therefore the valuation you can retrade, I think, with, with integrity. And if the seller won't retrade, you're, you're out. And I think that is a way for us to get into uh, some buying opportunities. There's a bunch in the Facebook group. And so since those are going to hang out for a minute, we can, our, our, um, our mentors and, um, you know, our team is in there answering questions. So I'm going to ask you two more maybe from the uh, Zoom call. Um, somebody's asking is C class or does B class have the best outlook? You know, I, I, I love B class. I, I really do. One of the things that, you know, the reasons we didn't get into B class earlier on is we, we could, we couldn't feel like we get the returns, but over the last, I don't know, 18 months or so, the cap rates are so close to one another, whether it's B or C, there wasn't really much a difference in valuation. And I really like B class better because in a, in a great market, people will come from C into B. They're going to upgrade. And in a down market, people can come from houses and class A luxury, and they're going to go to B. Now, if someone's living in a, a luxury apartment building, they will probably go to a, something that was built in the late 90s, for example, like, ah, it's not really what I'm used to, but it's comfortable. It's clean. I can live with that, right? They're not likely to go into a C class because it's completely out of their comfort zone as well. So I, this is why I really love class, class B. I think it's, a really, it's where things converge with each other. So anything mentioned about the extension of a 1031 timeline? Yeah, I've heard about that. I mean, we've, we've already seen the extension of the tax filing deadline to, to June. Uh, and we have heard about the extension of 1031. Um, I have not got a confirmation that is actually done, but apparently that's uh, rumored to, to be something that, uh, that they're being considered. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because uh, trying to sell or buy that timing is off a little bit. So Anyway, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. But I, I did want to tell you guys, I'm really excited about uh, Dealmaker Mastermind, just to go back to that real quick, because Josh Thomas was on his call. He's going to be teaching about the shift. 
Okay, so back to, this is really a great time to educate yourself. He's going to teach about how to go from where you are now to being a full-time entrepreneur, the mindset and the actions you have to take around that. So we're going to set up a whole new uh, Facebook group for this stuff. He's going to have a workbook. He's going to go live every single day. And this is going to be only for DealMaker Mastermind members. So if you're on this call, you're already a DMM member, you're getting an unadvertised bonus. If you want to join us, you're not only going to be able to connect with all these people where you can network online and get your answers questioned, which is alone worth the $49 of admission, but you can also participate in this cool uh, training class. Josh, you want to say anything about your cool class? Because it's really something you're really excited about, man. Hey, I've been hiding in the background. I know you have. And got, if not, oh, there you, what do you got there? I got a, I got a Zoe, so I'm, I'm rocking it out. I had, to, I had to fit in with the crowd. Awesome, man. Tell us a little bit yeah. about your, uh, your shift training. Uh, you know, I, I want to, but I, I also want to share something that I think is really important about the people that were just on this call. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, we put a bunch of smart people together is because we all rely on each other. And uh, there's not single one of us that, that knows everything we need to know in order to navigate this unprecedented situation. But with the collective knowledge of our community, we're going to get through this together. That's right. You, Michael, you're one of the smartest, savviest investors and entrepreneurs I've ever met. But you wouldn't do this by yourself. You and that's why I have these mastermind guys. These, uh, exactly. these, were all, these guys and gals were in my mastermind. And that's how we're going to get through this stuff as well. A point well taken. So uh, the, the point is here, uh, you're, you're going to meet somebody in a community, whatever community it is, uh, that's going to change your life. Uh, maybe you meet somebody that teaches you something that uh, will change your career trajectory. Maybe they partner with you on a deal. Maybe they'll fund that deal. That's how these communities work. They introduce you to people who are thinking about the same things. Uh, and especially right now, you know, with, with everything going on, you know, the entire world just turned into the largest community on earth. It, it contains literally every human being. We're all staying home so that we can protect each other. We're all looking out for each other. And that's really what a mastermind does. So I just really wanted to kind of drive that home. And I, I didn't get a chance to ask the people who were on this call, but I, I assume the answer would be yes. If, if I asked the question, how many of you panelists are currently in some sort of community or mastermind where you pool together your collective knowledge to make smart decisions. And I'm, I promise you every single hand would go up. I mean, right, Michael? That's right. Absolutely. I mean, a mastermind is absolutely important. There's really, there's really two levels of support, right? And this is the successful people have. One of them is a mastermind, which is your peer. These are your peers. These are people who are at or slightly above where you are, but you're really kind of going to the same, same trajectory. So the people on this call we're together essentially traveling to 10,000 units. That's kind of where, where we are. This is why we formed this mastermind. And then the other kind of support is the, is the senior mentor, the subject matter expert, right? So these are, these are people who've already done what you want to do. And you really need both. And whether you pay for that person or it's someone that agrees to have coffee once a month, you really need both of those people. And yes, if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one mentoring, if you believe in mentoring, you have the ability to invest in yourself, then check us out. That's, you can schedule a call with us at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor because our program is unbelievably awesome. We have, you're basically working with full-time syndicators and they're going to look over every single you're doing and you're going to hold you accountable. And if you're able to do that and invest in yourself, that's great. If you just want to network and create masterminds and do make a mastermind is, um, is a fantastic option for you as well. So yeah. Awesome guys. And so, and so just, Hey, just real quick about the shift. And since you asked me and I answered a different question. Yeah, you did. What's the matter with you? Well, you're punching by a politician. Uh, you, you don't, you don't pay me to say yes. You pay me to say the truth. 
Well, hey, so here's here's what it is. There there are five elements that you need in order to really be successful and make the shift from wherever it is you are right now to where it is that you want and need to be. Now's the time to do it. You heard it said many times. Uh, you know, I run a podcast and I'm interviewing really smart people and they're all saying the same thing. Now is the time, if you haven't done it, now is the time to really focus on getting yourself to where you need to be so that you can strike when the iron's hot. So there are five elements that you really need in order to be a successful entrepreneur in any profession. Number one is a singular focus. Number two is a measurable action plan. Number three is proper time management. Number four is understanding your finances. And then number five, and this is the secret sauce of, of success in any venture, accountability. And so what we're doing is we're putting together a 30-day challenge. If you're in the mastermind, it's completely free. You're going to participate with us every single day, and I'm going to walk you through all of the steps that you need to take in order to get from where you are to where you need to be. If you're making the shift to entrepreneurship or to becoming an investor and you're not there yet, this is where you need to be. It's, it's completely free. We're going to have a good time. The document and the workbook is completed. It's way longer than I expected it to be, but we're going to have a lot of fun. We've built in a lot of accountability and networking on the other side of this. I promise you're going to be happy that you went through it. And so that's only inside the mastermind. You can access that by joining us. It's $49 a month at uh, themichaelblanc.com forward slash DMM. Yeah, I'm really excited you're putting this together, Josh. Uh, it's so it's timely. So I hope you guys can all, um, all join us. So with that, Kate, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I've, I want to thank all of you, Josh Thomas, Kate Buck, and our, our panelists for joining us. I thank you for taking time out today to join us for the happy hour to talk about the state of affairs. So with that, thank you so much. Yeah, and you guys keep your eye out. We are, we are, we're planning to do some more. Thank you for joining the Facebook group. Uh, keep your eye out. We're planning to do some more training. So if you didn't get your question answered today, go ahead, feel free to post it. We'll be in and around and helping out in the group as much as we can during this time. So thanks for joining the group. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Great. Catch you guys later. All right. So the consensus is we don't exactly know what's going to happen at this point. And we're doing making a variety of measures to protect ourselves against what might be and at the same time, we're really going to try to serve our tenants by providing them with resources about how, what they can do to help themselves as well. So we agree that in the short term, it might be a little bumpy. Uh, in the medium term, we think that there will be buying opportunities and maybe two to three months. In fact, we're already seeing that right now. Long term, we're going to be just fine. And I think, uh, I don't know who said it, a couple of people said it, but I think this is where wealth is going to be created Right now, in the next three to six months, that's exactly when that's going to happen. And like we said on the show in the very end, I think the time right now is really to take the time we have, the next whatever, one, two, three, whatever months, we have unprecedented scenario where we're at home a lot. We're not going to, to the office anymore. We're, we're at home. We can't do anything really. So we have all this extra time. We have probably at least two hours a day that we're no longer doing anything with. Now, what are you going to do in that time? I would propose to you that the time to shift is right now. So if you're watching this on YouTube or you listen to it on, on, your, on your podcast player, think about right now is a time to shift from where you are now, where you wanted to be this time next year. Maybe you were making just slow progress against that. Now is the time to do that. Now is the time where you have the time and there's not imminent potential buying opportunities and you've got another two or three month runway to get that. So I propose to you that you use this time wisely. And we have a variety of resources for you 
to help you do that. Uh, number one is we've opened up our DealMaker Mastermind, especially since the situation right now. It was a little more exclusive and had requirements on how to get into that. We've kind of taken all those requirements out and just made it an affordable $49 a month to join our DealMaker Mastermind. And you can find out more about that at themichaelblank.com forward slash DMM for DealMaker Mastermind. And it's really an online community. We have several hundred people in there who are super serious. We've had Many deals come out of that. We've had companies coming out, joint ventures coming out of that. Uh, people finding deals, partnering with capital raisers, capital raisers partnering with deal finders, uh, balance sheet guarantors. It's really a magical environment. Now, you also have access to our deal desk where you can submit deals to us and our lead sponsor partners as well. So it's a really, really unbelievably cool program. And like I said, we just opened it up because I want to encourage everyone to kind of take action and build their support network. Right now, while we have the time, ask questions, get your answers, question, your, your questions answered. That's all in DealMaker Mastermind. We also have other opportunities. We have online training. We have the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings, which is our flagship online course. You can find about that all at themichaelblank.com forward slash products and check that out. We have a syndicated deal analyzer to help you get started with analyzing deals and making offers. And if you value mentorship, we have arguably probably the best program on the planet. Our students are unbelievably successful because you're working one-on-one -on -one with a full-time syndicator. And the students who go through that really accelerate their, their goals. Uh, they do bigger deals much faster because you're working with a full-time syndicator who owns several hundred, possibly thousands of units. And we've these people are hard to find, let me tell you, these mentors. And we have them. We have some of the, the best, biggest uh, multifamily syndicators that agree to mentor other people. So if you're interested in that, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and schedule a free strategy session with us and you can explore if, it's a, if there's a fit or not. So check out those resources. Again, we also have this podcast. If you're just joining us right now, binge watch all the episodes. We have the YouTube channel and we're in social media, of course, as well. So hopefully you'll follow along and absorb as much as you can. Appreciate you guys. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.